Thanks so much for listening to this message, A Church with Stains and Wrinkles, which was originally preached on September 19th, 2021 to City Church in downtown Iowa City. So about a month ago, I woke up early in the morning before my alarm went off and my brain was still half awake, but I did what many of us do in that state. I reached for my phone and on the home screen, as I was unlocking the phone, I saw a few notifications from various apps and one of them was a Twitter notification. Now, I am barely on Twitter. I've probably posted or reposted less than five times in the last five years, but recently I got on there to sort of follow the dialogue on a couple of authors I've read recently um, who've been writing about church history and the evangelical church in America, mostly about problems in church history. And, you know, because of Twitter's algorithms, Every time I would open the app, I would see suggested posts with content related to what I'd already been reading. So in the span of just a few months, my Twitter experience and feed had become 95% about the abuses and failures of churches, Christian organizations, and Christian ministry leaders. Uh, Twitter seemed like the place to go to have a dialogue in the public square about ungodly and unjust uses of Christian leadership and power, um, personal abuse by Christian leaders, or an unhealthy and toxic church environment. Um, For all I know, your Twitter experience is all about the Iowa Hawkeyes, but if you're on there, you know that you're going to get more of whatever it is you're already reading. So a month ago, when I woke up early in the morning, I looked down and I read a tweet that went something like this, and I don't remember it word for word, but this was the gist. In the last 72 hours, I've learned that three pastors I knew and loved have each left the ministry because of a moral failure. Um, For those of you who are not familiar with the phrase moral failure, it typically means in the church world that a Christian ministry leader or a pastor has violated their marriage covenant with sexual activity outside of marriage, Or whether married or single, perhaps they've sexually harassed or abused someone or have sinned sexually in some other manner that's hypocritical to the teachings they have been giving their churches and congregations. Or a moral failure might mean that a person knowingly did something financially unethical. They embezzled money or they had a conflict of interest and benefited or their family benefited from certain legal and financial activities, etc., So the disappointment and the anguish of the tweeter of this tweet was evident in the rest of what was said, but in that moment of being half awake, I felt anguish and grief just sort of rise up in my spirit over the ways that so many people feel that they've been failed by churches, Christian leaders, and and even uh, some of the beliefs they grew up with that they find out later are not very Christian, actually. And I knew the Holy Spirit was prompting me to talk about this here with you guys, and not just to talk about it and give my own advice and opinion, but to look at accounts in the early church where some of its members and church communities and leaders also failed to live up to the vision that Jesus had for his church and see if we can't find some hope for the church within the pages of scripture. So we're going to do that for the next several weeks. And today I want to see what scripture has to say more generally about this issue. And I will get to that in just a few minutes. Um, Right now, there is a mass awakening and dialogue happening about the fact that some Christian leaders do terrible things, um, that some Church environments are like a cesspool of gossip and envy and judgment, and that some of the things we were taught 
by well-meaning Sunday school teachers were actually more harmful than helpful for our spiritual formation. Um, we see this mass awakening evident in the sale of books uh, like uh, Jesus and John Wayne, a book of historical scholarship about how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation, which is, that's the subtitle. Um, we see it in podcasts like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which documents the many reports of abuse and dysfunction of the notorious pastor Mark Driscoll. Um, other podcasts like Gangster Capitalism have a seven-part series on Liberty University an evangelical university started by Jerry Falwell and later run by his son, Jerry Falwell Jr. And this seven-part journalistic investigation exposes Jerry Falwell Jr.'s alcoholism, nepotism, unethical financial arrangements, and finally the extramarital ongoing affair he arranged and participated in between his wife and a pool boy over many years. So social media is just exploding with these kinds of reports and journalism, as well as with the cries of those who've been victimized, hurt, and disenfranchised. Cries of people who've been unseen and unheard for a long time, and uh, people who in good faith participated in a church community or a Christian organization and found pain and shame and dysfunction. And some of you here today can relate to that kind of pain. Others of you are distressed and frustrated onlookers who see widespread injustice and abuses of power or widespread dysfunction and you feel helpless. And this mass reawakening or mass awakening has led to a mass movement of sorts of, of people who are reevaluating what they believe and reevaluating what they think the value of church involvement is, um, reevaluating whether they even want to remain Christians. And this mass reevaluation has given popularity to the term deconstruction, and you've probably heard it. Um, deconstruction has to do with the dismantling of a system of beliefs and ideas, taking them apart one by one and looking at each one and deciding if it should remain in the structure of my beliefs and value system or not. And uh, some of you have seen my husband's red and white VW Lego bus that looks like it's from the 70s. Uh, he spent a lot of time putting it together, but once in a while, he deconstructs his Lego sets because maybe he wants to see what else he could build with those pieces or a different arrangement of those pieces. So imagine that deconstruction of one's faith is a little bit like taking apart that VW Lego bus and setting aside all of the white accent pieces and then seeing what you could build with the red ones left over. You would have something totally different than what you started with, and it, it probably wouldn't look like a Lego bus anymore, which isn't necessarily a bad thing if you don't want it to look like a Lego bus. Unfortunately, the downside to the whole deconstruction process is that there is a risk that it will leave people with a worldview that no longer looks particularly Christian when they are done. And that could be because the bricks of their structure weren't truly Christian in the first place, even if it was Christian in appearance, or it could be that they never had the right blocks to build with. Um, I don't think it's bad or wrong to think critically about our theology or the practices of the church and church tradition 
and to identify things that are unhealthy or anti-Christ in our structures and, and leave those things behind. But I think it's important that we know the difference between the baby and the bathwater that we want to throw out. And I'll just say up front, if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, you don't want to throw out his church. In fact, Jesus's church, the community of believers around the world in history and in the future and in the present is incredibly precious to God. Even though some church communities, some Christian leaders, and some of the doctrine we've been taught by them have failed us, it might surprise you to know that the failure of those things is not a new phenomenon. Though we have louder voices that are able to point out the failures to a wider audience these days, but in fact, the failure of church communities and Christian leaders and certain unchristlike doctrines are as old as the church itself. The pain and the woundedness you may have experienced at the hands of other Christians or church leaders, it echoes the pain of Christians from the very first century, not long after Jesus ascended into heaven. And that's because the church and Christians are a work in progress, always. Because while Christians are people who've turned toward God through Jesus to receive forgiveness of their sins, and even though they've been born again by the Holy Spirit, born into Christ, given new spiritual life on the inside, given grace and empowerment to obey God and follow where Jesus leads, the fact is that each Christian, each of us, is still in the process of being sanctified. Now, sanctified is just a fancy Bible word for growing to be more like Jesus, growing to be less tempted by sin, slower to anger, quick to be patient and listen, quick to be obedient to the leadings of the Holy Spirit. And because some Christians are always in the process of being, uh, not some Christians, but all, because Christians are always in the process of being sanctified, and because some Christians totally abandon their faith and obedience to God while remaining in Christian leadership, it means the church as we see it represented to us is always made up of some imperfect people and people who fail and sometimes fail in egregious ways that bring great pain to others and also damage the witness of Christ and his church. The entire New Testament is filled with descriptions of what a beautiful, healthy church, church capital C, the body of Christ, the collection of believers throughout all time worldwide looks like. But the New Testament is also filled with story after story about how the people in church communities failed and hurt people and damaged the witness of the faith time and time again. So it becomes clear as we read through the New Testament that Jesus's church is caught in this tension between what it will be and what it looks like now. Jesus has a vision that those who follow him uh, will make up a growing, holy, beautiful community that demonstrates God's heart on the earth That's a light to the world, and yet the church, as we've seen it represented, has not totally fulfilled that beautiful picture yet in its entirety. Maybe we've known some communities or some people who truly are lights to the world, and, um, and you've experienced something beautiful, but most likely every one of us in this room have experienced a mixed bag. So 
let's look to scripture um, so I can just show you what I'm talking about in regard to this now and not yet of the church and see how we as followers of Christ can live into the vision that Jesus has for his church. In the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, we find the words of the Apostle Paul who was writing to the Christians in Ephesus. And at one point, Paul talked to them about household relationships. In the Greek and Roman world, there was something called household codes, which were guidelines for how husbands and wives and slaves and children were supposed to behave toward one another in the household. And I'll have to save this part for another time, but suffice it to say that Paul gives new household codes and he turns the secular household codes on their heads by offering dignity to wives and to slaves and to children in a way that was completely countercultural. Now, you and I, as modern believers, we might read Ephesians 5 and think, Paul has a low view of women. And, uh, and, it, and that's because we live in a culture where it's perfectly normal for women to have so many more freedoms and agency than they did in society in Paul's day. But I would ask you, just for now, just take my word for it, um, suspend your disbelief that Paul gives a redemptive spin on the household codes and marriage relationships of his time. And when he gets to the part about the relationship between husband and wives, he launches into a comparison between a husband and wife marriage relationship and the relationship between Christ and his church, um, Christ's body. And I'd like us to read this along with a couple other parts in the letter to the Ephesians so that we can better understand the way the church of Jesus is living in the tension of what it is now and what it will be, and how it can lean into what it will be. So this is Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives in a sacrificial way, just as Christ loved the church in a sacrificial way. Now, Christ's sacrificial love for the world makes the church holy or set apart. Uh, how is that the case? Um, first, God became human so we could see what God is like. Um, he revealed his divinity, though, by dying and coming back to life resurrection so that those who looked upon him would believe in him, would turn from sin and enter into this new kind of life characterized by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sin. Paul also says that Jesus made the church holy by cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And perhaps this is the image of baptism, um, the sacrament that believers are called to as a sign of their new life in Christ in response to the gospel, uh, in response to the good news that God forgives sin and that we should turn toward him and follow him faithfully. So when we look at this passage, we see an image of Jesus' end goal for the church, his bride, if you want to extend the metaphor. Um, when Jesus returns and God's kingdom and Jesus' reign come fully on the earth, 
he can present the church to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish in her garment. Think about bridal garments for a moment, perhaps a wedding dress that hasn't been worn by the bride yet, and it's exquisite, and um, hours and hours and hours of hand beating have gone into its preparation. It's been lovingly and painstakingly cut and sewn together, costing thousands of dollars. But imagine that when the fabric was cut for the dress, there was a large coffee stain on it, which ends up on the bodice of the dress, and it's discovered there on the wedding day. This would be cause for lament for any bride, wouldn't it? But God's plan is that the family of believers would be spotless and wrinkleless and beautiful, no stains of sin, no wrinkles of abuses of leadership, no toxic communities of believers, no false teachings and extra-biblical heavy burdens put upon other people. Now, if someone is tempted to think Paul is saying that the church is already perfect, all we have to do is read backwards in his letter to be assured that this is absolutely not what he's saying. In verses 3 to 5 of the same chapter, Paul admonishes the Ephesian church community, telling them that they have some cleanup to do, that there are some spots and wrinkles in their current community. This is Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, maybe we would specify these categories uh, to include things like racist comments, sexually explicit harassment, statements that denigrate the dignity of other human beings, jokes at their expense, the idolatry of money, None of these things are compatible with Christ's bride, the church. None of them are, and yet we see examples of them every day. And certainly Paul knew that this was happening in the Ephesian church, or he wouldn't have any reason to tell them to do otherwise. There are still spots and wrinkles in the church. Um, You see them in the examples that I gave you at the beginning of my sermon today, It's uh, in the gossip and the factionalism and backbiting and little country churches and envy and greed and your big urban churches and suburban megachurches. And there's you and me. And we may be in our own ways, maybe not in broad scale tweetable ways, but in our own ways, we've contributed some spots and wrinkles to the church. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking about the things that have been done to you, the ways in which you've been hurt by the sin or neglect or brokenness of a church community or a leader or a theology that has been sold to you. But here is the good news. I believe that the church can mend the church. And that just like a human body heals itself when it's wounded, 
the body of Christ has what it needs by the power of God and by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to mend itself as well. And Paul reveals how this works. The body can bring healing to the body's wounds. In Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, he says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, this may not sound like an obvious recipe for how the church mends itself, but if we read between the lines, we realize there's probably a Twitter chorus worth of people who have been wounded by the falsehood telling that Paul mentions, who have been wounded by the unrighteous anger Paul mentions, um, who've been wounded by those who steal, by those who are greedy. There are victims there between the lines, people who would be tweeting their stories if there was Twitter. Um, Paul continues with directions then for the church to mend the church. He says in verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. This is how, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church can mend the church. There will always be those who claim to be holy and yet do ugly things, but there is a bride of Christ that speaks healing words and builds others up to benefit them. According to Paul, there's a bride of Christ who can get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and greed and demonstrate kindness and compassion to one another. Do you know how healing compassion is? I mean, do you guys know how healing forgiveness is and kindness? Compassion, forgiveness, and kindness are some of the most therapeutic and healing forces that exist in the world. And I have hope for Jesus's church when I read Paul's letter. I believe in the beautiful work of the Holy Spirit through believers and communities that are fully submitted to Jesus, not in name only, but in all of their lives, and who are able to be kind, compassionate, and forgiving, who are able to speak in ways that build up and benefit others and won't grieve the Spirit of God. Now, as a way to end today, I I would say a few things. I would caution you about any process of deconstruction that would lead you to excuse yourself from this vision of Jesus's beautiful church. And instead, see if you can position yourself as one of its healing members. Certainly, we should acknowledge evil. We should be wary of unchristlike doctrines and teachings. But if we aren't crippled by our own pain in this season, I urge you to take your place like a frontline worker 
during the pandemic, um, stepping in to alleviate the suffering of the parts of the church that are wounded. We're all one body, and when one part suffers, the rest suffers. But Paul says that each of us does have the capacity to build others up and benefit them with our words and our actions and our attitudes. And perhaps you know someone who's been alienated or wounded or scarred by heavy teachings and judgments, um, abused or alienated, harassed or gaslit by leaders or church communities, how can you live as a member of the Mending Church for them? I wonder if you can find any sliver of hope that you could experience too, a pocket of, the, of Jesus's Mending Church. And if you didn't have hope today, if you don't have hope right now, I'm going to pray for hope. So Father, I do pray this right now, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to put to death um, sin that rises up in us, um, that, that tempts us, Lord, to be destructive toward others, to be destructive toward um, those who know you and those who don't. But I pray, Lord, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to be agents of your love and your compassion and your healing. God, I pray for those in this room who are wounded and for those who are listening online who are wounded and despairing because they have been so hurt by your church. They have seen such ugliness in your church. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them hope in the vision of Jesus's spotless church, that their imagination would be overwhelmed by this vision. Well, we ask these things, Father, in your name, that you would make us agents of healing and you would give us the hope of Jesus Christ for his church. In your name, amen.